Hello, everybody. Um, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here today to uh, chair the last um, seminar of the TSU seminar series, Hillary uh, 2016, on the theme, the general theme of urban mobilities in the smart city. Um, the seminar series has been engaging us on a, a reflective discussion uh, about what are the key issues raised by the idea of the smart city in relation to the future of, of uh, urban transport, transport and mobility systems. Today's seminar is dedicated to a specific uh, topic, um, the theme of smart technologies and public transportation, uh, public, actually public participation in transport planning. And um, in, in general, I think the, there are different ways in which this can be tackled, but one way I think um, the organization is thinking about um, is uh, how smart technologies are said to facilitate uh, the better informed uh, decision making about urban problems, and um, in particular in terms of urban transport. But as, as they have raised this, this sort of claim, um, brings about two uh, sort of concerns. One, one of these concerns is with um, the supposed uh, democratization of access uh, to information. Um, it is said that smart technologies can make information uh, accessible everywhere, anytime, but this in fact can obscure um, the social imbalances that lie behind the possibilities for the access to and the use of technology. So this is a concern that we'll, we're all too familiar with why the sort of the splintering urbanism thesis that many of us know about. The other concern uh, is that an excessive managerial focus on technology has the potential to evacuate the political dimension from urban um, transportation uh, uh, planning. And um, as all of us know here, that is, there's a long-standing tradition of research on the politics of technology that shows how many of these um, attempts at depoliticizing uh, infrastructure planning have uh, the tendency often to, to backfire uh, in, in many unexpected ways. But perhaps more significantly, the, the recent research on um, non-human entities in political participation um, might have brought up another set of questions about the materiality of public engagement and, and uh, with technology serving as a, a mediator and facilitator um, of citizenship uh, practices. So to help of us discuss um, these issues today, we have two great speakers, so I won't be saying any uh, more about um, the, uh, the topic, and I'll, I'll let them uh, go, get on with their presentations. Um, but before I do so, it, it is my pleasure to introduce our first uh, speaker, uh, Richard Kingston, who is a senior lecturer in urban planning and smart cities at the University of Manchester um, at the School of Environment, Education and Development, where you are also the head of planning and environmental uh, management unit. Richard is known for his extensive uh, experience for nearly 20 years now on planning support systems to aid uh, public, participation, public participation in environmental decision making. Um, you probably know some of his work on web-based public participation GIS, which he runs out of, of Manchester. Um, and uh, in particular, he has now uh, more recently been developing work on these 
planning support systems in relation to uh, to smart cities. He he has one one um, one of his uh, ESRC uh, funded projects. I think is uh, uh, related to the development of online toolkit for better planning of transport information, in, in specifically in relation to uh, travel to work flow. So I think you might uh, want to talk about that later on. Richard's presentation today is the title is already up. And I think he will be discussing the first concern, concern outlined earlier. Uh, he'll focus on the role of some smart technologies in public participation by asking who's in control and who are these technologies for. Um, so after Richard is done and we move from our northern guest to our southern guest, let's say, uh, Dr. Uh, Brian Marshall, um, who is a long-time uh, Oxford resident and also a, a graduate from uh, the environment, uh, the engineering science uh, department here at Oxford. Um, Brian uh, currently works at Nominet UK, and for those of you who are foreigners as myself and do not know what Nominet uh, UK is, basically the company that manages the .dot UK uh, domains and other domains and other uh, internet uh, infrastructure-based services. But um, at, at Nominet's um, R&D group, um, Brian leads the Internet of Things and Smart Cities uh, research. And through that, he has been involved locally um, with the Smart Oxford initiative, um, for which he acts as a technology advisory, uh, in a uh, technology advisory role, and where he's been involved in the 2015 Smart Oxford uh, challenge, I think particularly in the project um, that led to the implementation of uh, um, uh, low-cost flood, con flood control um, monitoring devices um, and also a, a web-based toolkit to um, monitor um, um, flood levels uh, in Oxford. I think that in another life, but perhaps not in second life, uh, Brian was uh, uh, the long-standing CTO at Codemasters for... Uh, the game uh, player geeky of you, uh, who might know that it, uh, Codemasters is the UK's oldest and largest video game publishers, um, and he, I think he directed a few uh, projects there that ended up winning some BAFTAs, so uh, we do have uh, both northern and southern royalty among ourselves. <laughs> Um, Brian's uh, presentation will focus, I think, on the second concern th that I mentioned earlier uh, regarding the political dimension of citizen engagement with uh, smart technologies. And he's, uh, in particular, his presentation will discuss the possibilities and challenges of how smart citizens can build a smarter city from the ground up. So without further ado, I'll ask um, Richard to start uh, with his presentation. And once you're done, we might have just a question, quick question of clarification if anyone needs one, and then move on to Brian, and at the end have uh, some discussion. So please, Richard, if you wouldn't mind taking up the, okay, the stage. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to royalty. Northern royalty is. Um, right, well, thank you for inviting me anyway. I can feel the temperature difference already just down from Manchester. Uh, it's a little warmer down here. But what I want to talk to you about, really, is about a sort of critique of smart cities and 
I spent uh, a lot of my academic career building technologies for participatory planning support. Uh, so I'm a town planner by training, by profession, I'm not a transport planner. Uh, but what I'm interested in is how specifically GIS type technology can be used and assist people in um, planning and public participation in planning. And some of the work that we've been doing more recently has been looking at well, this, this idea of what, what is the smart city, what does that really mean? And can that improve the opportunities for people to be engaged in decision-making about their city, <coughs> about the urban environment, um, about human environment, the natural environment? Um, and, and, you know, is this technology, this new brilliant thing that's going to completely change uh, how cities work uh, from life chances of people in, in cities, in deprived neighbourhoods, through to making cities more equal uh, around society. But there's a huge obsession with, with technology. IBM uh, uh, sort of jumped on this, Cisco, all the big multinational corporations. Um, I think sometimes I will show this slide when I'm talking to this to, to students. We kind of forget that you know te technology is not new. The motor car was invented 150 plus years ago. Uh, when it was first invented, people were scared of it, as we've all seen these pictures of someone walking in front of it with a red flag, warning that this technology was coming. Um, and at first, people were sceptical about this technology, and I would say there's a lot of people who are sceptical about this smart cities technology. Can it really change the way that cities are managed? Uh, can it make cities more equal? Uh, but now we realise that possibly, certainly, cars with an uh, internal combustion engine are probably not a good thing. And we're seeing some cities completely move away from the car. So if you do some research on what Hamburg are doing, they now have a plan that they want to implement which will make the city completely car-free. This is not congestion charging like in the centre of London where you pay to drive, you know, you'll all be familiar with congestion charging. This is a plan which will say there will be no roads of which cars can travel around parts of the city. They're going to be replaced, replaced with greenways and, and replace that with a lot of green space. Um, so some cities are sort of looking at this technology and particularly the sort of... Uh, technology around uh, congestion charging and road pricing, completely turning their back on that and saying, well, actually, no, we want to do something even more radical. We don't want automobiles, certainly not um, um, using uh, fossil fuel type of fuel automobiles in our cities. We want, we want a completely different sort of whole paradigm shift away from how we move and manage uh, people around our cities. So my starting point for any of this is to look at, well, what, what are the two sides of the coin here around the idea of the smart city? You've got one side where we might call the technologists, the big multinational corporations, are pushing this technology. Um, and they're catching that in terms of saying that it will make cities more equal. Uh, if you use uh, IBM's smart city in a box solution, you come along, the city mayor plugs this into the, into the town hall, and we press a few buttons, and hey presto, a few years down the line, our city's going to be a wonderful, beautiful utopia, and everything will be fine. Um, but one of the biggest challenges, really, for cities, and cities know this, is that you know, they've spent decades, centuries, trying to make cities more equal. Trying to, why do we have certain parts of our city that are extremely deprived, and why do we have certain parts of our city uh, that are extremely affluent? You can come into Manchester, you can buy a multi, a, a, an apartment in the centre of Manchester for a couple of million pounds, and you can walk three miles out of the city centre into... Uh, the sort of donut around the jam in uh, East Manchester, near Manchester foot City's football ground, and you're walking through the third most deprived neighbourhood in England. Um, so why, why do we have 
these huge discrepancies, and we could, I'm sure if you, you, Danny Dorling, who I used to work with when I was here, he would talk a lot about this, about how we make, why are cities so unequal, and how, how do you make them more equal? And the, the IT proponents of this and the, the technologists would say, well, our technology can help you overcome this. We can analyse things and better understand why our cities are like this, and we can offer solutions to overcome these problems. Um, some research, one of my, myself and my, one of my researchers a couple of years ago that we published an EPA article was looking at what cities are doing and the way they promote themselves as a smart city. And some are deploying it as a kind of urban strategy uh, as a way of promoting themselves. So the, the suggestion is that if you're not a smart city, you therefore must be a dumb city. If you don't have a smart city strategy, you must be doing something wrong. So most cities now around the world will have a smart city strategy. And a lot of it is for inward investment purposes, to say that this is the smartest city in Europe, come and invest in our city. Um, and it's, it's becoming the sort of thing that's a no-brainer for cities. They will, if you, most cities, big cities now, will have a smart city strategy. Um, and I would argue that for, probably if I'd have been here, if you'd asked me to come here 10 years ago, I would have been talking about eco-cities, sustainable cities. And today, cities have stuck the word digital or smart in front of the title. So everywhere is a digital city or a smart city. And actually, when you look into what's happening, it's actually one of the same, really. The smart cities is capturing this idea of the sustainable city um, and, and the, the eco-city. But one of the big problems that we've started to identify in cities and some of the case studies we've done, particularly around Europe, uh, is that many cities are being hugely influenced by these corporate IT agendas. They feel that if they don't sort of get into bed with some of these IT providers, they will be left behind. That they're going to be left uh, behind the sort of leading, le leading edge cities. Uh, but one of the real problems for cities over the past 20 years is that most ICT, IT and ICT uh, expertise in local government was outsourced in the 1980s, 1990s. Um, and there is a lack of IT knowledge within cities. They're starting to slowly come around. I'm sure Oxford has a kind of smart city team. Manchester has its digital development agency. Cities are slowly starting to realise that they need to rebuild this expertise. But this is a real problem for them, that lack of internal knowledge within the city. Who, who in the city can make an informed judgment about whether or not they should buy IBM's smart city solutions or Cisco Systems smart city solutions? Um, and they're spending vast amounts of money on some of this technology, uh, essentially our, our money. So what is the smart city? Well, there are, there's a whole set of literature. I realised I should have edited this, the fact that I've removed a, an earlier definition having a relatively short space of time. So ignore this former definition. But for some, it's about, uh, it's about the technology. Um, and arguing that this technology, you implement this smart technology in cities... It will, it will make the city work more efficiently. You plug these solutions in, you can be collecting near real-time data and responding. And I'll talk a little bit later about some of the, the experiments we've been doing with some of this kind of uh, data. Whereas other, others would argue that this is a, a way of, of, of becoming more efficient. If you implement this technology, it will drive down uh, your, your costs um, and, and it will reduce the environmental footprint uh, of, of the city and its operating budget. When you read some of this literature, what it misses are things like we now see on the edge of cities huge data warehouses consuming vast amounts of energy for all the servers that sit behind this. We all kind of sit in our offices and lecture theatres and universities. There's lots of you online, no doubt. 
consuming energy that the wireless network is producing. Somewhere that's all being powered by some servers in a large warehouse that's consuming vast amounts of energy. And these costs are not accounted for in the kind of equations and, and the monetary value that, that, that the ICT companies will be claiming. So I think there's been work by Simon Marvin, uh, who's now at he's, he's moved a lot, he's now at Sheffield University, uh, in, in the Urban Studies Institute, who's been looking at the, the cost implications of the smart city and having these huge data servers, data banks off-site that, that are costing lots of money. So whilst they're claiming that uh, all sports in, uh, innovation of the low-carbon economy, a lot of this, these costs are offset to other, other places and not necessarily considered. So this just captures what I was saying earlier. The smart city is... Uh, displace the sustainable city and the digital city as the word of choice uh, to denote ICT-led sort of urban uh, innovation, new modes of governance, urban citizenship. So, all as I said, all cities are wanting to be, be smart cities. And, and some of the work myself and one of my researchers have done is has been looking at how cities around Europe are using uh, the smart city as a kind of strategy for sort of urban innovation and inward investment. So there are now league, Cushman and Wakefield produce league tables of the smartest city in Europe, the top ten smartest cities. I think several years ago Vienna came out the top. But it's the kind of, you've got Vienna, Amsterdam, Barcelona, London, Manchester, tries to think it might get in there, but it never, never quite, quite does. So the big leading cities around Europe. Um, and essentially that, that, that smart cities can be used as marketplaces really for, for the delivery and, and, and selling of this technology. I know, as I said, lots of big companies behind this. If you talk to IBM, though, IBM will promote this idea of a smart city solution in a box. I don't think there's a single city in the world where they've actually sold the smart city in a box. They make claims. I think the closest they got to was was, uh, was um, selling it to, to Rio. for the. Um, but it's essentially a sort of command and control type of system um, for, for monitoring what's going on at the moment. There's nothing really that's coming out of these at the moment that is saying anything about looking forward into the future about how they will alter um, the, the conditions in, in cities. And some work by Holland, this is a really interesting paper, it's quite a few years ago now, but he wrote a paper, so will the, will the real smart city please stand up and arguing that actually none of these cities that are claiming to be smart cities are actually uh, smart cities. Um, and that it's essentially just reinforcing what already existed. Uh, and that the smart city, so this is some work by Steve Graham, going back, you know, I think you mentioned splintering urbanism, so the work of, of uh, Steve Graham, Simon Marvin, and Simon Guy uh, in splintering urbanism, looking at the, the smart city essentially is for the, for the rich, the affluent, uh, the mobile sort of creative, creative people. Um, but you can kind of put the smart city into one of three categories. Those that are connected in with the technology and being pushed by the big multinationals, it's technologically deterministic, it's all about the technology, the sort of technology, some refer to it as the technology will save us movement, that the technology will fix, you can have a technological fix to the problems of the city. Um, for other cities it's all about place marketing and branding, if you're not engaged in this smart city dialogue, if you're not if you don't have a smart city strategy, you, you'll fear that you will be left behind. Um, but for the work that we've do, been doing, where we're looking more from a bottom-up approach of how do you get citizens involved in decision-making, in decisions about their city, it's more about essentially what, what planning and urban, urban sort of participation and planning and urban development should be about, improving the places where we live. It should be about the people. 
um, and the, the livability of those, the, those, the people and places and the communities that people live in. And if we look around the world, there are kind of two approaches to how this is playing out, whichever one of those sort of three themes you look at. We've got what I would call the, the new, the kind of experiments, so some of the new cities. So Songo in South Korea, Mazdar in the United Arab Emirates. And this is a really interesting Planet Valley in Portugal. Um, has, have you heard of Planet Valley? <laughs> so Planet Valley is being promoted as uh, a, a town, well, it's a town in Portugal that is going to be the first real sort of smart city, smart town. And if you go onto their website and read what's there, you would be thinking, well, if I book an aeroplane to somewhere, I can't remember exactly where it is, get a flight to I can go and visit this place. This is Planet Valley. It doesn't exist. Um, one of the companies behind it is based in the UK, but the way it's been marketed and sold to people is as if it's already in existence and you could be, you could be living there, you could move there next week. But they've not actually got it really beyond what we can see here. It's, it's a bit of um, part of it. And then we've got other cities where we're looking at how they can retrofit this technology into the existing city. So if you go to Amsterdam, um, Barcelona, in far corner here, they've got uh, in the centre of the city an uh, underground hat. It's like a giant vacuum cleaner. So when you put your rubbish in the, the, the waste bin, um, it goes through a hydraulic pipe under the city centre and out to a recycling plant on the edge of the city. Um, so they've kind of retrofitted a, uh, a huge um, waste recycling system within the city. So there's ways in which many cities are retrofitting. We've got lots of examples now of the, the sort of forest-type bikes. Um, this character here is the head of, well, former head of Manchester Digital Development Agency. Who's been, his job has been to promote Manchester as a smart city, talking up the opportunities that the smart city offers for, for Manchester. When you dig beneath the surface, it, you then realise that there's lots of little miniature sort of small-scale experimental projects going on around the place. But one of my, my criticisms of all of this is that these, these projects are targeted in the areas where they don't really need smart city initiatives. So the big project in Manchester is called the Corridor, and it goes from the city centre down Oxford Road past the two universities, connects up the hospitals, which are already connected up anyway. It's not going into East Manchester to the third most deprived neighbourhood or other parts of Greater Manchester. where we've got, you know, So if we're trying to improve life chances, improve the condition of the city, why are these experiments focusing on uh, particular parts of the city that are already well connected and, and relatively uh, affluent? So one of the questions really we've been, we've been addressing is, is so as well as, you know, I, I developed some of the technology as well, we run experiments and testing some of the technology, but at the same time we're also asking some of the more sociological questions about who's actually really in control of the smart city and who, who is this for? Um, and it's saying that for smart cities to succeed they need to be more than instrumented, I think Mike Batty was talking a lot in the first summer about the instrumented city and the sort of the Oyster card data and how you can measure everything. Yeah. and understand where people are going but they also need to have collaborative leaders who lead by listening um, but who are they collaborating with who are the city leaders talking to are they talking to citizens or are they talking to the, the, the IT uh, leaders um, and what and where is the citizen's role in this and I, I would argue that, that, that in a way that just putting smart on here you could take all the smart parts around out of this and say, well, it's actually no different to what cities are trying to do anyway, what fundamentally cities should be doing about providing better, more equal access to services 
Um, and the technology is just being used as a way of saying that by the, the technology company saying we, can, we will sell you this technology and it will improve all of this. Um, there's no evidence yet really to show that, that things will improve um, in cities. <coughs> So the cynical view is that this is being uh, controlled by large, large commercial companies, and I'll give you some examples of what they're claiming in, in uh, a, a short while. And that these big commercial IT companies are coming into cities and saying that this will drive down your costs, it will improve the way in which you run your city, you'll be able to manage your services much more efficiently, um, and essentially creating this marketplace by integrating ICT within the, <coughs> the city, city's development. Um, so we've got the sort of top-down business-as-usual approach, and I guess this is kind of similar to what I know has been happening in, in Oxford as well, more grassroots, sort of what you might call a hacktivist approach. So in Manchester we have something, uh, a, a space in the northern quarter, the kind of cultural area, uh, where there are what they call themselves hacktivists, where they're developing their own apps, they're having competitions, I think you talk about this a bit later, in sort of competitions that are going on in a lot of cities now where you get people who are working with open data, so there are things happening from the grassroots to, to, uh, with the aim of trying to deliver services that are more appropriate for everyday citizens, rather than just focusing on the, the, what you might call the high-end uh, citizens. Now, I've always found this interesting. Is there anyone who works for IBM or Cisco or any IT company in the room? What's the IT company? Right. <laughs> so I, I did a, I showed this slide to one of these big IT companies and said, could you tell me which one is your corporate strap line? Uh, but what's interesting about this, so these are three different global IT companies. And it, I, you're not going to have time to read it, but they're all saying the same thing. They're all claiming the same thing. They're, they're reminding us all, and we all know as planners and geographers, that uh, you know, we've passed the 50% tipping point in the urban world. Uh, they've all got, well, the secretary, we've both got 75% in there. Uh, you know, we're heading towards by 2080. Um, so they're all claiming that they can do the same thing, whether they're IBM, Cisco, Alcatel, we could put others on here, Microsoft, Google are getting involved. So all claiming that this is going to fix the city, and I would question them about well, what makes them think that they can fix cities in five years, ten years, which has been taking hundreds of years for urbanists and planners uh, other people involved in, in managing cities that we, we, you know, we have people all around the world trying to tackle these problems and they seem to think that they bring their technology along and will fix some of these, uh, some of these problems and they're promoted they're coming up with these very flash looking diagrams saying plug our technology in and we'll be able to fix your transportation problems we will know exactly where all the cars are um, and we can manage the traffic uh, system much more efficiently for you we can redirect traffic around the city. So <coughs> some of the work we've been doing in Manchester is looking at putting a wireless sensor network that's collecting, collecting near real-time pollution data on the street network. And if pollution levels reach a certain critical level, you can connect that into the traffic management system and redirect, tra divert traffic onto alternative routes into the city until the pollution level drops back to an acceptable level and then allow the traffic back onto the street. Now, that doesn't really fix the overarching problem because all you're then doing is pushing the problem onto another street and the pollution level goes up on that street. You then have to shut that street and then move the traffic. So you're just sort of moving, moving the deck chairs around on the, on the Titanic, really. We need, you know, the Hamburg solution is possibly the, the longer-term approach to some of this, assuming that you're talking about 
engines, internal combustion engines. Um, so what our cities do? Well, there is a network of cities across Europe called the Connected Smart Cities Network, where they're starting. To, some of the cities are now starting to realise that the IT companies are maybe not the best solution to this. And what can cities learn across Europe? And a lot of this is from EU-funded project, projects. What can cities learn uh, from each other about sharing good <coughs> practice, best practice, about the approaches that are, they are taking to the smart city? What kind of technologies are are working for them. So one of the real problems is with these companies coming in, selling them a particular product, they don't necessarily have the internal expertise to judge whether or not that works, uh, getting evidence from other places to find out whether that's worked. So through these kind of networks, they start to learn and share experience of which technology are working best for them and how they can re-implement them in different, different cities. And there's the usual sort of public-private uh, arguments. I've kind of said this before about the fact that um, how, how a city's making an informed judgment and some of the IT companies are coming a bit more enlightened and realising that they can't just come along and plug in. Uh, so as Cisco was saying here, that uh, they thought they could, you know, five, ten years ago, just come along, plug in their technology and they would fix the city. They're now starting to realise that cities are extremely complex. So IT companies have worked with, you know, big, large, private corporations, banks, insurance companies, and they look at their system and how their systems operate, and they assume that if you attach algorithms to those, they can make things more efficient, and that normally works in a, in a lot of systems. Cities are very different. They don't work in those kind of, kind of ways. They can get disrupted. They're very irregular. Um, so they can't just plug it. They're essentially using the same technology and algorithms underlying a lot of this smart city technology that they apply in the private sector, and they're then trying to implement this in a city, and it, it just doesn't work. <coughs> and this is an example of where a city tries to do something right, and the private sector gets very upset. So if several, a few years ago, uh, cities could apply for uh, the Super Connected Cities project. So this was a fund from central government. Cities, in the usual way, bid for the money competitively against other cities. And Birmingham was awarded uh, money to basically roll out broadband into more deprived parts of the city. The bits where BT and Virgin didn't want to put broadband because they didn't think it was uh, commercially viable and uh, would produce enough profit for them. So Birmingham decided they were going to roll out broadband into this particularly deprived community and then BT and Virgin took the city council to the European court for uncompetitive practice because they were saying they're using it was under state aid rules so it was all got a bit complicated but they 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 were claiming that the city couldn't go in and put the broadband network into this part of the city that was deprived in, in that aim of trying to make the, the city more balanced uh, because um, they they were uh, providing uh, state aid subsidies and, and they took them to court despite the fact that Birmingham City Council themselves couldn't, didn't don't have the, the people and the expertise and the technology to actually, they weren't digging the road up and putting the cables in, what a surprise they were actually going to employ these companies to do it on their behalf for them they were kind of paying BT and Virgin a subsidy to do this but they stopped them saying it was uncompetitive so when, when cities try to do something, try to do a good thing, they then get stopped by, by these big companies saying, well, that, that's uncompetitive. Um, and we've had similar stories in, in Manchester as well with, with BT. So when the city has tried to roll out its own fibre network in certain parts of the centre of the city, particularly for small businesses, uh, BT have then 
started charging exorbitant prices to connect to the, the broadband um, network. <coughs> so what have we been doing so more, more recently in Manchester? Well, we, we finished uh, last, last year, towards the, in 2014, we finished a project called Smart IP. So this was all about, uh, so the IP isn't internet protocol, it was for intelligent people. So we were saying that for the smart city to work properly, we need it to work closely with, with people and citizens. Um, and we had a series of work packages, and one of these was around smart mobility. So this was not about saying, as the transport authority in, in the cities that we were working with around Europe, that we will Im implement some technology. It was starting from the bottom up and talking to residents and citizens about uh, how they moved around the city, what kind of services they used. So mapping them in real time to understand their movement, and then providing transportation services that matched the movement that they were actually doing around the city, rather than the other way, where you normally provide the service, where you, you, you sort of take your best guess at where you think services are required. Um, and in, some, in Bologna... Uh, and Amsterdam, we were working, trialling some of these devices where we were giving people handheld devices, wearable devices, so we could track where they were moving around the city or, or cycling around the city, and then using that data to start to reanalyse how people moved and travelled around the city, and using that to help uh, deliver um, the services. Um, so it was building up from the bottom rather than from, from the top, and getting the citizens involved in deciding... Uh, how they plan. And some of the work we just started to do in Manchester um, with the Transport for Greater Manchester, sort of Greater Manchester Transport Authority, is doing something similar and starting to think about what they're going to start calling pop-up transport services. So as their budgets are getting squeezed, um, and everyone kind of thinks of Manchester as being the, the urban sort of Manchester Salford in the middle, there are some fairly rural parts on the on the what's called the Pennine Fringe, where where transport services have been radically cut back. And what they're now thinking about is if they could know in real time where people are requiring to go to or near real time, going to, to and from in those more uh, rural parts of the, of the region, they can make sure that they're providing transport services on a, a sort of on-demand basis. But being aware of certain events that might be taking place in, in, in these more peri-urban areas, that they can respond with appropriate services rather than having... A, a current bus network, which is often providing buses running along routes that, that are not particularly heavily used, particularly at, at outside of peak time. So having something that is much more responsive uh, to the needs of, of where people are moving to through using this sort of real-time uh, information and people using apps to request services between different uh, places. I think one of the challenges for that, for them economically, is to think about well, wh where's the tipping point be between making the decision about providing the service or not providing providing the service based on, on the, the demand. Right, I know I'm short for time, so I won't, I won't go into lots of details. But the Smart IP project was ready to say, well, yes, there's lots of this top-down uh, implementation of technology. What can we do from the bottom up? What can we do if we go and ask citizens what they require? What do they want in terms of what sort of technology could, could they be making use of to provide more responsive in, the, in one case, uh, mobility uh, services, we also have things about engagement and environment. So one of them around smart, in, smart environments was actually linked into transport. So again, down this corridor area where we have the real-time uh, pollution monitoring collection devices are all the uh, lampposts. These things are attached to lampposts covered in a plastic box. 
that captures uh, pollution levels. That then gets mapped through um, something called Patchu Bay, um, and that can then integrate. We never integrate it into the traffic management system, but the theory is that you integrate it into the traffic management system, and you can then reroute the traffic around different parts of the uh, of the city. But what we have been doing, and one of the underlying problems with this, is how do you actually get people engaged and involved? If you talk to people about, you know, what, why do you go online? What do you do when you're online? Um, it's predominantly to do shopping, to book a holiday, to buy goods and services. They don't go online to uh, interact with the local authorities. So for Manchester, they've been really struggling to get residents who uh, live in social housing to pay their rent through the internet. Uh, despite providing free internet services in libraries everywhere, uh, people are not wanting to use the internet to interact with public services. So some work we were doing uh, with the city of Ghent was to try and start playing games in communities uh, and using gamification approaches. So these birds, which we have produced, uh, in, would placed around Ghent, they're deliberately to look like the Twitter bird and they go tweet, tweet. You can whistle at them and they whistle back to you. Um, and the idea was that if, depending on how often you whistle, you get points for your community area. And then it started getting people competing with their other... So I must admit, when we first thought of doing this, we thought this was crazy, it would never work. By the end, a lot more people suddenly started getting engaged and caring about their neighbourhood, which had started off as a game. And suddenly people started... We put benches by all of these things and people could sit down. People started sitting and talking to each other who had never spoken to each other before. And, so, and then started talking about the, the, the conditions in their local environment, the services that we provided. So through the, because people essentially, you know, if you put a pack of cards or a game board in front of people, people will start playing. You can't, I promise you, you can't stop yourself. We, one of my PhD students has been looking at this and the theory of it. People like playing games, even if you think you don't like playing games. If there's a game in front of you, you will start playing. Um, and this approach then led to much more higher levels of engagement in these communities using um, their, their smartphones to in interact. So we're using, so we, we were sort of trying this idea of, uh, of gamification around, we've been doing other experiments in, in Manchester looking at how this approach of, of, of running games gets people more involved. So you move from a game environment into actually the, the, the sort of what it starts off as a game then becomes an actual real decision-making process. So engaging people about transport services uh, about the, the quality of housing in neighbourhoods and then they sort of move relatively seamlessly from the game environment into a real decision making environment I've nearly finished so why is this important for cities um, well I think the key thing really is for cities not to, to fall into the trap of thinking that if we bought this technology uh, it, it will solve everything to realise that they still have their overarching aim is to try and make their, their cities more equal uh, more accessible um, but cities are still spending a heck of a lot of money on this thinking that this will solve some of the problems and there's not a lot of evidence that this is happening yet so if, if you go to Barcelona they had a new mayor last year the, Barcelona, the new mayor completely got rid of the smart city team because the mayor thinks I'm going there in a couple of weeks so I'm going to get an update on what, what's happening but <coughs> The mayor believes that all of this money is a complete waste of time, that it won't change what's going on in Barcelona. I'm not quite convinced. But um, um, there's, there's a lot of rhetoric about, 
uh, about the smart city, saying that it will solve the problems of cities. If we look back in, in 10 years' time, we'll be still talking about the smart city. Will, you know, will this technology really have changed uh, um, the, the fortunes of cities? Um, and there's a huge push from these technology companies who see a big hole here of which they can be delivering their services and getting quite a lot of money for doing this. Um, and I would also say, what about the ordinary citizens, those people, who, the ordinary people who wander around the city, who live in the city, who aren't necessarily benefiting from a lot of this technology, but potentially could be, but are not really getting uh, engaged. So we're certainly moving more towards the data-driven city. There are ways in which this, this real-time sensing can be a benefit uh, in terms of, of, of managing the city in, in real-time. But a lot of what this tech, the companies are talking about is, is how you just deal with things in near real time. Uh, we still need to plan the longer term. What are the longer term trends in a lot of this kind of big, I think Mike Batty probably talked about big data. Analyzing this big data to understand the longer term trends and the impacts of, of what this is doing. Um, and something that some people are starting to go on, talk about now is what, what happens when the power goes off? If we're relying, I always use the the example of um, what's the Italian job, you know, where they, they mess the, tra the, the traffic light system goes all funny, it causes chaos in the city. What happens when, you know, if everything is underpinned by this technology, what happens when the lights go out, when the, when the, when the electricity doesn't work? Uh, what are the systems that will uh, sit there in the background to make sure that things will still, will still function? Um, and we need to avoid this idea of cherry picking and social dumping, so the idea that, you know, you can particularly for the technology companies, uh, focusing just on the, the uh, affluent areas, the more lucrative parts of the city, and avoiding the more deprived areas. And when a city tries to fix that problem, they're then taken to court by some of these uh, big companies. Um, so the key thing really is about... Um, so, so many of these solutions are, are about the, the centre where people work, not necessarily about where they live. And one of the concerns of this is, particularly in our bigger cities, is the focus is entirely on the city centre for this technology. What about the suburbs and where people are actually living? And it's not just about the, the very centre of the city. And a lot of these ideas and this technology that's been influenced is, is, is failing to deliver the benefits to what I'd call the, the sort of ordinary, ordinary citizens. And I probably haven't got time to leave that on, but I think the slides will be available. But, but this was the former uh, head of Vancouver's planning department, who was at one of these big expos in Barcelona, uh, where everyone was talking about technology, and what he's essentially saying is, well, yes, this is all good, but we still have the same issues to deal with in our cities, and not, not, he's not convinced that the technology will really make any difference. Uh, so the smart city will still... He's uh, not going to fix things, and he's talking about very small, <coughs> often it's the small-scale things that will change the way in cities, the way that cities uh, work, so things like uh, dealing with urban design and how you um, <coughs> allow people to move around the city more freely. But I, I should stop because I realise I've used up my time. <laughs> very much uh, Richard for uh, this uh, uh, presentation I would just uh, ask if anyone has a question of clarification which you might want to ask Richard while we switch but something really just of clarification um, if not we'll get uh, Ryan to set up two seconds two seconds <laughs> need something up there with you
But I think certainly the big play by the big technology companies and, and, and all the issues of a, of a complex city certainly, certainly sort of rings true there. So I'm Brian Marshall, I'm from uh, Nominate, uh, and uh, I'm going to talk to you, uh, as we sort of discussed earlier on, about a project we've been working on for the Oxford Flood Network, which is really about enabling citizens, smart citizens, let's say, to produce their own uh, uh, um, sort of um, data solution for, for a smart city in the absence of other data. So, but before I kind of go into that, I guess give you a bit of background. So, Nominet is a not-for-profit company based upon the Oxford Science Park, or around 150 people. And we're best known for running the .uk registry. So, if you go out and buy a domain name for your website, let's say mydomain.uk, you'll probably buy it from GoDaddy or Wanted or whatever. And um, they will then register that with us. And we have 10 half million domains that we look after. And we also run the dot part of the UK infrastructure, so the dot UK infrastructure. So that's the domain name system. So when you type in bbc.co.uk into a browser, that goes off and gets resolved in, in part of our infrastructure and comes back with an IP address for the computer you actually want to connect to. So we're very much an uh, internet infrastructure company as well. And we handle 4 billion of these DNS requests, domain name system requests, every day. So we're very much a, a big data, big data company as well. So what on earth has that got to do with citizen engagement, transport planning, uh, and so on? We're not transport planners, hands up now. We're not really citizen engagement experts. We are very much internet, uh, 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 I guess, experts uh, in, that, in that sense. Um, Nominate R&D, and this is our, our team here, uh, about 12 of us, we are um, tasked with looking at the future internet and what impact that will have on the company and uh, as a company which is also diversifying, also to its offsee and see what opportunities there are in that future internet. And one of the big sort of disruptive technologies we see in the future is around internet things, so connected devices that, that Richard's described and so on and uh, how that will, will affect uh, uh, the future of the UK's sort of internet infrastructure. Um, uh, yeah. I lead the, uh, I say the, the IoT research at, at, at Nominet. Um, we've been doing this for about two years now. And uh, uh, one of the things that you know, we discovered very early on was that the big demand for internet things, the key driver, was going to be smart cities. And if you believe the analysts, and this is always, you know, take a look at uh, the analysts, so Gartner reckoned that today, well, 2015, there are 1.1 billion devices associated with smart cities, even healthcare, transport, smart offices, uh, homes, and so on. But by 2020, that'll be around 9.7 billion, which is a huge growth. 
And so you start to wonder, okay, well, the, this, this, this growth of uh, 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 um, sensors, of, of data sources and so on, you know, how's that going to affect me as a citizen? How's that, and Richard in the has gone over that really, really nicely. But I think um, what, we, what we've really looked at is saying, well, if there's this data, if this is the growth of the data, what is it like today? What, what, where can I get this data from for the smart city? And so you ask this question about data availability. So, for instance, if I was, um, uh, if I'm interested as a citizen, if I'm interested in, when, in getting data about sort of bus journeys in uh, Oxford. So let's say there's a, uh, I think it's the X3 bus goes from Avenue to Oxford. Can I get that data somewhere? And so you have to ask the question to begin with. Well, does that data exist in the, in the first place? Does the bus company actually capture it? Do you, if they do capture it, can you get hold of it? Where can you get it from? Do they have APIs and so on? Do you have to buy it? Is it commercially sensitive information? Is it in the right form? So, if, for instance, maybe I'm more interested in, let's say, children's journeys to kind of work out the sort of school planning and so on. Well, do they actually capture that bit of the data as well? Have they got it in the right sort of resolution? So, certainly around spatial, spatial resolutions for, for air quality, you then need really quite high density. Of, uh, of sensors to get a good image and map of, of air quality within the city. And is it the right sort of temporal resolution? So if you're only sampling once an hour, is that actually going to give me enough of an idea of the, uh, uh, of the movements on, on and off the buses? And then do we actually trust data? So, for instance, <coughs> in the case of, uh, um, uh, of this data, do you know, the bus company is probably a reputable company and therefore we think, okay, this is going to be a good set of data, but if it's a system generated data, how do we actually trust that data and how it's how it's been how it's been generated? What do we understand its sort of data provenance as such? And so, um, if if this data doesn't exist, which I think, in our experience, and this is very much from our experience, there's no hard evidence to go on this. Many of the time, any of the questions we ask about the city and say, ah, have we got data on this? Can we do something around that to do some modelling? Actually, the data really, really, either, either doesn't exist or it's really hard to get hold of. The companies that have got it, certainly around saying Wi-Fi data, telecoms data and so on, really, really difficult to get hold of. So if it's not there, as a smart citizen, what can I do to actually generate this data? How can I, how can I, how can I produce this in, in, in a new way? So, and that's kind of, I guess, the quest, that's kind of the question at the heart of, of this talk, is really, if the data doesn't exist, what can I do to generate it? And then what can the smart citizen do with this data once they've got it? And for a question for us at Nomad, is really what tools can help them with this whole process? And this is exactly what a uh, chap called Ben Ward did a couple of years ago. Um, so Ben is a sort of, uh, he's a network <coughs> engineer, uh, social entrepreneur. Sorry, I don't want to touch up the general full part. Uh, um, social entrepreneur in, in Oxford. He, he lives in the Grand Pont area, which um, like I actually live in the same area, same area as Ben, uh, and like uh, many areas of Oxford, certainly in the south and the west, gets affected by flooding every few years. So these are some images from 2004 that I took. So this is the Abingdon Road, one of the main roads out of Oxford, and this is actually my my, my old back garden, and you can see the water's really come up here. So Ben's sort of um, question was really around: Is there enough data on flooding? and the water heights around Oxford during these flood periods. Because what it does is it affects people's lives greatly. Um, one, it stops them from going to work. 
uh, to, uh, you know, can, can flood some of their houses. Um, it, it, it obviously, and, and there's a lot of uh, vulnerable people in these areas that need looking after. And so you get this great disruption. But also to the city economically, I think in the 2014 floods, uh, uh, the city estimated something like a 50 million, economic, 50 million pounds economic loss to the city because of the flooding. But Ben's sort of Ben's sort of concept is: can you can you give the citizens more information during during these flooding periods? And uh, um, one, of the, one of the sort of reasons he's asked this question, he asked these questions. Sorry, is that the the Environment Agency does do something about monitoring the main rivers? And so it's not a great image this, but this this is Oxford here, and these points here, these four points there are where the Environment Agency has live monitors. So you can go onto the internet and you can see this through open data and so on. But they're actually on the main rivers or in, in, in spots of sort of, of critical interest for the EA. Um, but there's a lot of small tributaries and things that run around people's, certainly around this area here, run around the back of people's homes, around the back of the gardens. And it's actually this water that tends to rise up and actually affect, affect their houses. So Ben's concept is, well, well, can we start, can we actually monitor these smaller tributaries and streams and so on with, with, with the new technology to um, uh, 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 fit in this, these data gaps? Because these things here, this is the typical EA monitor, I should say. Um, I think this bank was actually built for it. So you can imagine this goes into, the, not just thousands, but tens of thousands to put these things in place and monitor, and monitor them and maintain them and so on. So Ben's solution is around uh, 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 this, this, this sensor here, which I've got, got one there, which is, which is the, and he's kind of created this uh, um, uh, uh, sort of initiative called the Oxford Flood Network, which he's now turned into a small startup called Flood Network. Uh, but this sensor here is really, it's, it's an ultrasonic uh, distance sensor, and it points downwards, and you could put it maybe over a sort of small gantry like this, or under a bridge or whatever. And it really just pings down every 15 minutes and works out river height below. And then that can be referenced against some sort of data somewhere. It's a small, there's a small short range radio in here, and then that goes off to, if it was at the bottom of someone's house, at the bottom of someone's garden, onto a stream, that would go back to a hub back in the home. And then it's opportunities, opportunities, I can't even say it. Uh, use the internet connection they have uh, uh, to. Uh, um, uh, provide the connection back back to the internet, uh, and and then once the data is there, it's processed through a whole bunch of bits uh, uh, of software and so on, and is then presented back to the user uh, as a, as a flood map. So this has all been really possible by the fact that this technology has really come down in price this last few years, and it's it's come out of this idea of the of the maker movement. The fact that you have technologies like 3D printing, which is where you know the, the physical objects have been digitized and you can set the plans around and then you can recreate them with 3D printing, but really kind of low cost. And then also from the availability of uh, technologies such as Raspberry Pi and Arduino, which really brought down the cost of computing. So the latest uh, Raspberry Pi, Raspberry Pi Zero, uh, is around $4 now. It's something incredibly cheap. And so Ben's concept is around uh, um, the, the sort of utilising the maker movement to to really um, sort of uh, to be able to generate this data in the smart city. So the original plan 
was around uh, kind of along these lines. Get you've got to get people interested in the project to begin with. Find the people who are interested in the flooding issues. Uh, uh, design some open source hardware. These things. And distribute them on the internet, and then get the homeowners themselves to build kits, and then to be able to be able to then put them at the bottom of the gardens, connect with the internet, and so on. Send it off to what we would call an IoT platform, or as we like to call it, Nomnet, sort of a set of IoT tools, and then engage with the wider community via, via the website. So this all sounds great in theory, but actually, you know, we, it, it does hit some challenges really quite quickly. And if we take the sort of first point here, so this is a bunch of flyers that got sent around the city in uh, these areas here, once again, along, along the streams, along here, it's around, I think there are around 300 or so homes these got sent to. So Ben's concept of, of, of there's enough makers out there so it's a place for the right people. Uh, so you know, they'd be capable of, uh, of, 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 sort of putting together some technology, they'd be interested in flooding. And then you end up with this sort of Venn diagram, I guess, of, of people with skill set to put together sensors. Uh, 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 those that have the right location, as in they are on they are on the streams, have a garden at the right sort of distance of the short range radio, and then also they're interested in flooding. Now the first pass of all this really kind of sort of proved the obvious in a way that actually those skill sets really just don't don't marry up, and only got a few responses, and so it immediately changed the plan to one of actually these these sensors have to be pre-built. Uh, it was certainly to a certain extent where it's quite easy just to put them together as a, as a kit at least. And that, that, that changed, the, I guess, the sort of uh, uh, first element of that. And then the second part is just really is a bit of our experience. And um, uh, it's just that hardware development and design, even with the new technologies out there, it's still really difficult. Um, it's not straightforward at all. It's, it's great going having the, the Raspberry Pi having that on some sort of workbench somewhere in an office or at home, but then actually testing this stuff in the field in real conditions in, in, in the middle of winter is a different matter altogether. And so you can sort of see here, I mean, there's, there's four, four iterations here but of the sensor. So this started off uh, as the very first prototype. It looked a bit too much like a bomb to hang underneath uh, the bridge. Don't do that. Uh, and then you can sort of see how this is maturing. So we kind of got, as Nominic, kind of got involved at this stage here in the V3 version of the sensor. And uh, what we could do was bring a bit more resource to it and a bit more, um, uh, uh, some extra facilities and things. And we helped, uh, um, we worked out a deal with um, Hogate Rico Park, just south of Oxford. And we did, um, uh, uh, we, we, we ran a, a set of winter tests for these sensors um, over, over the last winter. That kind of uh, raised a few issues, and then that created the version four, which is what you see here. Uh, and then that has led to uh, um, that's led to that being tested over this winter. So you're talking about 18 months to develop this type of hardware. It's not a straightforward process for people to actually make a market great, go out and buy these sort of component parts. It's like yes, but there's still a lot of, of learning there. So there's a couple of key issues: things like radio radio uh, 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 technologies. So again, that right balance between bandwidth, power, because these things are battery powered and they've got to last a few years. You don't want to go out and maintain them that often. Uh, and and, and um, uh, bandwidth, power, and range is really hard, and we kept hitting the issue with range. Uh, and so um, you know, th th those, those, those are problems that just don't go away in the internet of things. The big claims about we're going to have sensors everywhere. Well, it's always the right type of sensor for the right job. 
Uh, and then the costs are an issue as well, because we hit, uh, uh, by the time you add up the part, component parts for this sensor, and then the Raspberry Pi base, you end up around all the bits and pieces about £150. Uh, and then if you put, say, £50 on top of that for someone to actually go away and construct it and test it and make it reliable, you're up into the 200 mark, which is beyond really where, where it wants to be, where the consumer wants it to be. And I think in reality, over time, you'll hope to get this sort of stuff down to about 30 pounds. And that involves it going off to high volumes, off to Chinese manufacturers, etc. And so that's, that's quite a big challenge. And then there's the software side of it. So this is the internet things. And this is really where we, we as a company came in. Uh, because we were interested in, in understanding what the end-to-end -end process would be in gathering this data. Because when we came involved with the project, it was a case of, yeah, there are a lot of internet things, toolkits and, and platforms really out there. Uh, but um, as a research group, we really wanted to do stuff ourselves so we actually understood all the issues. And what became quite obvious sort of uh, early on is that there, was, that there were a whole bunch of issues that some of these other toolkits and platforms were, were ignoring, uh, which I, I could spend you know, probably a whole set, uh, a, a whole talk on, but it's actually, this is, more, this is more our area. But the point being is that very few of these um, uh, systems are actually testing live environments. And so you're actually getting maturity into, into internet things software and making sure all these things talk to each other is, is quite a big challenge. And one of the things that was also important to us was to create a public map at the end to actually create almost that, that sort of feedback loop for, for, for the engaged user. So if I'm putting this at the bottom of my garden, I'd really like to see how that actually, uh, how that turns out and, and, and how that data is then represented. So uh, what we wanted to do was we, Rather than uh, on these standard interfaces where you have the whole world covered in lots of sort of these sort of like little symbols, what we actually wanted to do was make it much more immediate and much more uh, 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 sort of interactive for the user and get to see all the historical data very easily in one go. And so we've created a, a public map where I should say also things like the, the background here, we've kind of reduced, reduced the actual the rest of the, the, um, the city and pushed it right back visually and just highlighted rivers and then linked the data to the actual river segments. <coughs> so what we want really is, is sort of a really engaging interface. So kind of, as I said, to, to create that sort of feedback loop with the user. And then we're asking ourselves at the moment, because we are still, we are an R&D group and we're still developing, asking ourselves some interesting things. So <coughs> we've got the ability to show images in, in the public map. And then we start asking ourselves questions about, as I said earlier, about the, the trust of the, of, the, of the data in the first place. And I guess, you know, so, so the question I have is, if you saw a deployment like this, where you've got sets of scrap together with some cable ties, uh, and kind of just hanging off some sort of bit of random material there, um, would you trust the data from that more than perhaps this one here, where you've got a very sturdy sort of set, set of uh, um, uh, supports, and actually slightly sort of out of out of, out of reach of, uh, of um, uh, uh, people interfering with it. And I think you know, this, this sort of extra sort of contextual data that, that, that can be brought to, brought to these sort of platforms could, you know, could, could have uh, quite, quite a big impact. So that's really where we are today with the flood network. So it, this map, the map got launched in November. Uh, and uh, there's around 15 units out there to date. 
Uh, Ben's looking for more and more people. So if there's anybody here, mm -hmm. come to have a home <laughs> with a garden, with a stream at the end. Uh, Ben's looking for, for more volunteers. Um, but it's, I think, you know, in, in many ways, this is just the start of the project. And by being live already, I think it's had something like 2,000 hits on the website. And there are now sensors around the country as well, because other cities and other places are starting to see the importance of this. But it's worth pointing out, it's not just, uh, you know, this is just one project. There are other smart projects going on. Um, this is the air quality egg. A lot of projects around air quality. Um, seems to be a big, big uh, sort of area of interest in there. Uh, and then this one here is a bit more interesting because the sensor itself isn't particularly interesting. It just measures temperature and it's in a shed something. But it's actually the network itself. So the network is called the Things Network. And this is about long, uh, a sort of low-power, wide-area network that citizens can create themselves. And so it starts from Amsterdam, but I think it's now over in 30 cities around the world. And it's sort of, in a way, when I think about it, it sort of bypasses the standard telco companies and so on. So this is, this is something really interesting worth looking at, looking out for. And then, I've talked about the flood network, but that's one single app. When we talk about smart city, we talk about all these, these data points kind of working together and, uh, uh, and trying to understand the holistic city. So for a, for a smart citizen, where do I put this data so we can create the bigger smart city? And so we're starting to see sort of the growth of these sort of, I guess you call them data hubs. Uh, if you haven't seen any, work, worth looking at the Bath Hack one, that's kind of interesting. So these are open data, data hubs you to go in, pull data out. Uh, London Data Store, really interesting as well. I've got some, it's got some nice sort of dashboards to it. But they're targeted very much at sort of the entrepreneurs, the developers to go away and, and, and build new applications to, to fr fr from that. But they're also, I guess, they're really looking at the sort of data scientists who can um, kind of pull, do a lot with the data and work with these things. Uh, so, but they're not really targeted at the sort of, what I would call the sort of almost the casual citizen interested in stuff. Yes, there might be a lot of freedom of information and stuff in there, which I know why a lot of the councils are interested in having them. But, um, uh, uh, just a casual user who wants to, to, to investigate a bit about the city or perhaps go through some, some sort of scenario planning or something that's not there. So the question I have is really, and maybe, maybe to the rural audience actually, is you know, where does the smart citizen go after this point? They've, they've, built, they've built one of these things, they've gathered some data, they've put it into sort of, I guess, a very vertical application. Maybe they put it onto a data hub, but is there something beyond that, is there a, a way of uh, doing some really interesting sort of smart cities sort of uh, 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 planning, I guess, is really a way to describe it. And I'm seeing a real sort of lack of what I've called accessible models for, for, for prediction around this at all. And maybe that's an area of opportunity. And so if I was just going to sort of summarise a few things, which are kind of what I see as the current barriers to smart cities, and I kind of put them into three groups. I've got the makers down here, the, the sort of techies, very much where I am. And then we've got the willing hosts, and then the curious citizens. So if I start over here, the makers, uh, um, you know, the big things for them at the moment is the hardware, as I mentioned, you know, these things. Yeah, the hardware uh, is still still requires a lot of skills. There's, a lot of, there's still costs when you add up all these bits. Reliability is really difficult to achieve in, in real circumstances. Um, and, and, and then when you start to even start to think about selling this stuff, you've got to think about certification and all sorts of things. IoT connectivity is that thing about that issue where you have power. If you've got these things wireless, they've got to be battery powered. 
They've got a tiny amount of energy. You've got power with range and the, and the bandwidth, and you're always fighting between the three. And then in some places, you've got to think about connectivity back to the internet. And uh, um, certainly in Hogacre, where we did these tests, we had to um, put in a, um, a, a, a link there, and we did that as another experiment with a thing called TV White Space, another talk again, uh, to actually get the connectivity. And then you've also got to think about the cost of all this stuff. <coughs> Who's going to pay for, that, pay for that connection? And then we've got the willing hosts, which I kind of call these people who are, who are kind of willing to have these technologies on their, in, their, in their property. And uh, they've got, um, uh, you know, you've got all these things like the physical world, the location, the land ownership, but then that stuff's never going to go away. That's that stuff that needs to be done. But at the moment, they need kind of moderate tech skills. They need to be able to reset routers or whatever, or, or, or even DIY skills to put these things up. And they need to have a real reason for doing this stuff in the first place. You know, what's, what's the compelling reason for, to, to be part of the flood network? <coughs> Excuse me. And then there's interesting stuff. Uh, around the sort of concern, so privacy. So with the flood network, because people are hosting these things in the home, uh, if someone goes away for let's say two weeks and turn off their Wi-Fi, you've suddenly lost on the map uh, um, one of your one of your sensors showing so uh, um, um, how how the rivers go up and down. So it, but there are there are all sorts of interesting privacy and security concerns. Uh, and then there's the, and there's the regulations around well you know who owns the data I guess regulations probably not right but it's data ownership and so on. Uh, and then at the end I guess I've got this curious system bit which the raw data can be put into data hubs uh, but you know tools for, for, for the citizen just to dip in and out they, they aren't really there they're not they don't seem to be there's GIS and so on it's really quite complex to get into to get into that area. And then on the other side of it, this is where I've kind of, uh, uh, this is really where the sort of more vertical side of things is. So on the apps, we need to think about the interfaces, as I said, with the map, really thought about how people would want to interact with it. And, and almost target it as a consumer. And then I've got the sort of, at the end of all this, is like the so what? Well, well actually, what am I getting out of this? What's, what, why am I doing this? What's the impact for the city? And that is really the hardest part of all to scale. Because that's, you know, we can all come up with 101 great tech ideas, but actually getting something which then impacts on the city itself is a different matter. <coughs> so, um, oh yes, oh yeah, so, yes, so, so, so what's the good news is though that um, technology is moving on as always, and um, uh, costs are coming down, and as these costs come down, um, and, and there's new radio technologies and stuff coming out, actually, some of this stuff will get simpler. Nominate's role at the moment for us is that we're working on the IoT tools and we're trying to, to work out how we can make life easier for the smart citizen. And then with these technologies, it will help this side of it in terms of the willing host. In fact, to the point where version 5 of this sensor probably won't require a uh, in-house hub at all. It will just go off to perhaps one of these citizen-based uh, uh, networks. And then on the... Uh, Curious citizen side, data hubs. More and more cities are getting them. Hopefully, Oxford, we're working on trying to get one of those in place for Oxford in, in, in the near future. But more and more cities will get data hubs where you can put this data to be shared with everyone else. But it still leaves some of these key areas that just won't go away and, and, and need addressing. 
so uh, a few summary thoughts. I don't know if I want to go over them, but, uh, <laughs> but um, uh, it's, it's a case of don't underestimate how much effort it is to go into this, this, this area. But actually, you know, it's actually been well worth it, and uh, it's been, been a sort of fascinating ride to date. Thank you very much.